So, Lord, I know that there are things that you want to show us. What does it mean for us as we study your word? Give us understanding, Lord. Uh, help us to, to clearly see what your word says about what is coming. And, and, Lord, that we would be ones, that we would use it to be able to minister to others in this confusing world. We don't have to be confused because you're not a God of confusion. But, Lord, uh, just continue to show us and to grow in your wisdom and your knowledge. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in Revelation chapter 6, of course, continuing in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5, if you were with us, was that heavenly scene as John was caught up in the spirit to heaven. And he began to focus on the one who sat on the throne, uh, then the things proceeding from the throne, and then those things around the throne. There was the four living creatures. They are going to be mentioned as we continue through the book of Revelation, those cherubim, we identified them as cherubim. They had six wings and, and eyes all over them. They're buzzing around the throne of God. They rest not day and night, and they're worshiping the Lord. And then there was 24 lesser thrones with 24 elders seated. And we see them as they cast their crowns before the throne of God, and they're worshiping as well. And in that heavenly scene, we moved into chapter 5, where this drama unfolds in heaven. And we saw in the hand of him who sits on the throne of God the Father was a seven-sealed scroll, which we identified as very well uh, could be the title deed to the earth. And John, in verse 4 of chapter 5, you recall, if you were with us last week, began to weep bitterly, convulsively, because no one's found worthy to take the scroll and to loose its seals. And as we explained that, that John knew that uh, as that title deed is being held and, and the seals, seven seals are there, that no one was found uh, as one of the, uh, the elders said, look, look at the one, uh, the lamb who is slain. He is worthy to open the seals and the scroll here as Jesus then, of course, the one who uh, is the lamb that was slain uh, would take this seven seal scroll out of the hand of God the Father. And we, we talked about how when Adam sinned, he was to have dominion over the earth. Uh, when he sinned, that was forfeited over to Satan. Satan's called the God, little g of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. And we know that when Jesus was taken up on that mountain in the temptation of Satan, that Satan boasted. He said that, see, all the kingdoms of the world, they're mine to give to you, and I will give them to you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus did not dispute that they were Satan's to give to Jesus. If you bow down and worship me, if you yield to me, and of course he would be rebuked by Jesus, but Jesus went to the cross to redeem us back to himself, to redeem the world. And Jesus telling that parable in Matthew chapter 13, that kingdom parable, that the kingdom of God is like a man who, who uh, found a treasure in a field, gave all that he had to buy the field to take the treasure out. And in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is explaining to the disciples those kingdom parables, the kingdom, uh, the parable of the sower. And he says the field represents the world. So we know that, that Jesus in that 
parable of uh, the buried treasure is telling us that uh, he is the one who came to this world, gave up everything, even as Philippians chapter 2 says that he humbled himself, uh, became obedient, becoming a man, uh, and being obedient to going to the cross. He's the one that redeemed the world back to himself on dying on that cross to take the treasure out, and the treasure is you. Those of us who come to Christ and we are going to be with the Lord in heaven and that is such good news for you and for me. So uh, the solution is given there in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. And that new song was uh, sung by a multitude in verse 9 of the chapter that you're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you are slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongues, people, and nation. That's the song of the church. It's not the song of Israel. It's not the song of the angels. They weren't redeemed. It is the song of the church from every tribe, tongues, people, and nation. And chapters 4 and 5 are chapters that cause us to have hope in this world today. That after these things, we are going to be caught up in heaven and we are going to be forever with the Lord. And the people of John's day needed to know that because they were being persecuted very heavily. And we need to know that as well, that heaven is real. And that one day we're going to be all together and we're going to be singing that song. So I would encourage you, get to know the words of that song, memorize it. So when we are there, you can just jump in and start singing, and we'll start singing together. Maybe get a jump on uh, others that didn't study the book of Revelation chapter 5. So that's a, a day that we're all looking forward to. We will see the one who sits on the throne. And now as we move into chapter 6, the scene changes from heaven back to the earth. And what we're going to now see in chapter 6 through 19, in chapter 19, describes to us the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is a period of time that will be seven years. Seven years that precedes the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I want to go back to the book of Daniel. I want to give you some references because some of you, this may be a bit of a review if you've been with us and studying the scriptures together um, as we've gone through the books of the Bible, as we've talked about these things. You may be well versed in them, but a lot of people aren't. They don't understand. They'll ask questions like, how do you know that the tribulation period is seven years? Uh, uh, how do you know that the one who's the rider on the white horse that we're going to read about is the Antichrist? And, and all these questions come up because what we're going to see here as, as we go through this is we're going to see the rider on the white horse take center stage. And we're going to learn that he is the one that's going to be a world leader that will come on a scene that begins what is called the day of the Lord. Now we saw that term going through the book of Isaiah, the day of the Lord. We see that term also in the New Testament. Paul uses that term. Even Jesus would use that term that day. Don't be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and, and the cares of life. Lest that day overtake you. So we need to understand what exactly that time frame is, why we know that the tribulation period is seven years about the Antichrist. People ask, where does he come from? And I think even non-Christians, they hear that term Antichrist, right? They know about the Antichrist, and they picture kind of this kind of a guy in a black cape and, you know, and red eyes and a hideous laugh <laughs> that's going to overtake the world. Listen. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians uh, 
that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to come on the scene as an angel of light. And Daniel, that book in the Old Testament is called the forerunner to the book of Revelation. And what it, the book of Daniel does is it gives us the very foundation to Bible prophecy. So we're, we're going to talk about Daniel chapter 2 for a moment. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, 8, and 9, the time frame, why we know that it's seven years. And you need to know it because if you don't, you're going to get all confused and, and you're going to get mixed up and messed up, and then there's all this teaching out there. It's amazing how many evangelical churches are adopting the preterist view or all millennials. There is going to be no thousand-year reign. There's going to, you know, the preterist view is everything's pretty much taking place. Jesus is just going to come back. Uh, there's, you know, replacement theology, some of those things that we've talked about. But there's a lot of things that are taking place in these chapters. So if we have that foundation, it's going to help us to understand these things that are taking place. So in Daniel chapter 2, what we see there is called the foundation of Bible prophecy, that Daniel is taken off in a cap Activity, as we saw in the book of Isaiah. And one of the things that keep in mind, here's another point that I want to make, that remember in chapter 1 that John, that he was told by the angel to write these things that must shortly take place. These things must shortly take place. Not that they might take place, or it's a possibility. You might recall that in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 2, right as Isaiah receives those visions, in Isaiah, we went through that, talked a lot about the reign of Messiah, the day of the Lord, that Isaiah was told that you write down the vision of these things that will come to pass in the latter days. Again, that in the Old Testament, it's emphasized that these things are going to come to pass. And I want to emphasize that because there are those who will come along and spiritualize the book of Revelation or it's just an allegory or whatever they come up the interpretation. Listen, in the book of Isaiah, those of you who are with us as we went through all 66 chapters, that we know that the Old Testament as a whole in Isaiah contained uh, many of those prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming, concerning his birth and the sufferings of Messiah and, and, and you know his first coming. There's over 100 prophecies concerning in the Old Testament of Jesus' first coming in detail, his birth, his life, his ministry. Um, that's all was talked about in the book of Isaiah, some of those prophecies. And every single one of those prophecies were fulfilled to the letter, every dot and tittle of them. They were literally fulfilled, right? As the prophecies were given where Jesus would be born and, and born of a virgin, Isaiah says, and uh, tells us about his sufferings and all the different things that are told to us about Jesus' first coming, his birth, his, his life, uh, his ministry, his suffering, his, you know, uh, you know uh, resurrection even that's given in the Old Testament. David writes about it. And every single one of them were fulfilled to the letter. So let me ask you this. In the t over 200 prophecies concerning Jesus' second coming, can we be confident that it's going to be fulfilled to the letter, especially when we are told that it's going to be? 
So as we go through this section, and there's a lot of things that are taking place, we're going to see in chapter 6 here that the first six seals are going to be opened up of that scroll. And when the seventh seal is opened up, then we're going to see that seven angels will stand up with trumpets, and they will blow judgment on the earth. The seventh angel, when he blows his trumpet, that seven more angels are going to stand up with vials or bowls pouring out judgment on a Christ-rejected world. But there's a lot of other things that are taking place as well. We're going to learn about the 144,000. And there are those who will come along and say, well, that's just, you know, uh, the church. Uh, There is going to be the tribulation saints. There is going to be the two witnesses. There's going to be all kinds of things that take place during this period as Daniel gives us the foundation of it. The book of Revelation gives us the details of what's going to take place in what is called Daniel's 70th week. But in chapter 2, the foundation of Bible prophecy, Daniel is taken off into captivity. Remember Isaiah's warning about Judah, captivity is going to come. And Hezekiah was told that Hezekiah, the day is going to come when those envoys from Babylon that you just entertained and showed all the treasures to, that it's going to come where they're going to take your young men away. So in 605 BC, the first wave of captivity took place as Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken off into captivity. They're being trained in the affairs of the Babylonian government. In 597 BC, the second wave of captivity, where Ezekiel is taken off into captivity, he begins to prophesy in Babylon. And then Jeremiah stays in Jerusalem, and he is there till Jerusalem is destroyed as the third uh, wave of captivity comes. And this time Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he destroys Jerusalem. He destroys the magnificent temple that Solomon had built. But Daniel there, he's in the the, the courtroom, the the palace that is of, of Nebuchadnezzar being trained to be one of the wise men of Babylon. And God had gifted Daniel to interpret dreams. Well, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, he's losing sleep because he has a dream. And he goes to his wise men, his soothsayers, his magicians, and he says, I had a dream. It's troubled me. And, and I want you to tell me what the dream is and then give me the interpretation of the dream. And those uh, you know, wise men of Babylon said, Nebuchadnezzar, we can't do that. We can't tell you what the dream is. That's unheard of. You need to tell us the dream, and then we'll give you an interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar, who was a hothead, he said, listen, if you guys are for real and you are hearing from divine inspiration, then you need to tell me the dream and the interpretation as well, or otherwise I'm going to cut you to pieces. So they couldn't do that. So Nebuchadnezzar, he gets mad. He begins to kill the wise men of Babylon. Daniel gets wind of it. He says, listen, tell Nebuchadnezzar that give me some time and I'll give him the dream and the interpretation of the dream. So Daniel and his friends, his Hebrew friends, they have a prayer meeting and the Lord reveals the dream to Daniel. And in that dream, as as Daniel stands before the most powerful man on the face of the earth, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, here's the dream that you had. And God revealed it to me, the true God of heaven and earth. And what you saw was the image of a man. And that image had a head of gold, and then it had chest and arms of silver, 
had a belly made of, of brass and then legs of iron. And then there was an extension of the legs, which was, of course, the feet and ten toes. It was iron mixed with clay. And Daniel said, here's the interpretation. As Nebuchadnezzar was amazed, that's what I saw, that image of that man made of different metals. And Daniel said that, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. But you're going to be replaced by the chest and arms uh, of silver, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. And, and as you go through the book of Daniel, you see that, that Babylon would be defeated by the Medes and the Persian and Cyrus that comes on the scene. And he would then make the decree that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem and, and rebuild the second temple. So the Medes and the Persians are represented by the chest and arms of silver. But they're going to be replaced by the belly of brass, that is, the Greek Empire, that's Alexander the Great, and then the legs of iron represent the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, of course, was ruling during the time of Jesus' ministry and his death and his resurrection. That's what you saw. But but Nebuchadnezzar, those the feet that was iron mingled with clay, and this is what's important: that they had ten toes. And he goes on and he says, the interpretation is this that those ten toes are ten kings. We know that Daniel, that he had a dream, and it was of the same four empires, those Gentile empires that were on the scene from the time of Daniel to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Again, the very foundation of Bible prophecy. But Daniel, when he has a dream, he sees it as four beasts, four animals. And, and it makes sense. According to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, man sees his kingdom as gold, silver, and all of this. According to God's view, man's kingdoms are beasts. And Daniel, he sees, first of all, this line that represents Babylon. Then he sees this bear that represents the Medo-Persian Empire. That's how the Medo-Persians defeated, you know, all the, the nations of the known world around them. They had a huge army, and they just kind of lumber uh, along and, you know, just crush everybody. But then Alexander the Great, he is represented, Grecian Empire, by a leopard because they're quick. And he had a small amount of troops that would strike very quickly. Then he saw a fourth beast. And he doesn't identify the fourth beast, but he says it was dreadful. It was terrible. And in that fourth beast, it had ten horns. And we are told in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 that those ten toes of the feet, iron mixed with clay, they're an extension of the legs of iron, that they are ten kings. And we are told in verse 44 of Daniel chapter 2 that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. So what are we learning from that? That in the last days, right before the second coming of Jesus Christ, there is going to be these ten kings, not necessarily ten nations. He says ten kings. Because I read all the Bible prophecies in ten nations. It could be ten nations, but it's ten kings. Is it ten kings that are ruling over, you know, in ten regions? We don't know. But it's going to be this revived Roman Empire. And perhaps you have heard of that. And Daniel painstakingly, he begins to tell us about this revived Roman Empire, these ten kings again. And in chapter 7, he's writing about these ten horns and horns 
horns in the Old Testament represents what? Power. And all of a sudden, in the midst of these ten kings, ten horns of Daniel chapter 7 of this fourth beast, that there's a little horn that comes up, and he begins to talk about this world dictator that's going to come on the scene. And the little horn, Daniel's prophecy, spends a lot of time talking about him, as well as now Revelation chapter 6 through 19, or really through chapter 18, he's known as the Antichrist. Jesus taken center stage in the heavenly scene of chapters 4 and 5. Antichrist now has taken center stage in what we're going to be reading over the next several weeks in this period of time called the tribulation period. And the reason that Daniel is called a forerunner to Revelation, it gives us information about this lawless one, this man of sin, the son of perdition. Matter of fact, I think that the Antichrist, that he has 33 titles in the Old Testament, 13 titles in the New Testament. And he is spoken of quite frequently in the scriptures. We know that Jesus would mention him. We know that Paul would write about him. And so he comes on the scene during this time, we're going to read about him coming as the first seal that is opened up. So one of the things also, as we know, that there's going to be this revived Roman Empire. Remember, Daniel chapter 2 is the foundation of Bible prophecy. It's iron mingled with clay. It doesn't mix very well. It's kind of brittle. But out of that, the ten toes, these ten kings in the last days before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because in that vision, this rock hits the image, and the image crumbles and then the rock grows and it speaks of the kingdom of God. That's, you know, our rock, Jesus Christ, who's going to his kingdom reign forever and ever. But secondly, listen, I don't mean to bore you with a lot of Daniel, but to give us an understanding that Daniel also gives us an important outline that we need to understand as well. And, and we read in Daniel chapter 9 that outline, everything in that outline has to fit in to Daniel chapter 9 in the 70 weeks of Daniel given, particularly in verse 27. And I know I've talked about this before, but we need to understand it. So in Daniel chapter 9, the last four verses are imperative if you're going to understand end-time prophecy. You see, Daniel, as he's there praying about 70 years of captivity, they're about ready to come to an end. He's praying, and all of a sudden, Gabriel shows up. Gabriel is associated with messages concerning the coming of Messiah. And Gabriel says, Daniel, I'm going to give you understanding and vision concerning not 70 years, but 70 weeks. So Daniel's given this incredible prophecy. It's one of the most incredible prophecies of all of Scripture. And in Daniel chapter 9, that it is told in verse 24 that 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So who's Daniel's people? The Jews. His holy city. Jerusalem. I don't know how many times people have emailed me or called me and they'll want to argue, well, that's a prophecy for the church. It's not a prophecy for the church. Daniel's people are the Jews. And the holy city is Jerusalem. 
So he says that 70 weeks, that word weeks is a seven-year period, so there's going to be 70 periods of seven years that are determined for your people and for your holy city. In verse 25, know therefore and understand this. You need to understand this vision, that the going forth of the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, that's 69 weeks, or 69 periods of seven years, the street shall be built again in the wall even in troublesome times. So here's the amazing prophecy that after 69 weeks, 69 periods of seven years, which is, as you do the math, 483 years, as you take the Jewish calendar, 483 years, if I'm doing it right, I'm doing it all from my head, I'm not looking at my notes, times 360 days, it comes to 173,880 days. Is there a time in the scripture where the command came out to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince comes? It's going to be 173,880 days. Some of you know this. In Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah, that he is the cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes. And he's grieving. And, and Artaxerxes says, Nehemiah, why do you look so sad? And Nehemiah says, because my brethren in Jerusalem, the city still lays in rubble. You see, Cyrus, he gave the decree in 536 B.C. for the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. It wasn't until later Nehemiah was given the command that they could rebuild the streets and the walls around Jerusalem. In the 20th year, in the month of Nisan, when the day isn't given, it's assumed the first day. So what is interesting is the British Royal Observatory took that first day of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the Persian king, in his rule, and the British Royal Observatory, as they came to that day, was March 14, 445 B.C. So if you start counting 173,880 days from the command given to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until coming to Messiah the Prince, 173,000, you came to April 6th. 32 A.D. When Jesus told his disciples, go into the village, I want you to get a young colt, and I'm going to go right into Jerusalem. And as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, for the very first time, he accepted public worship. And the crowds are waving the palm branches. Remember that we went over that on Palm Sunday? And they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in Luke's narrative, the religious leaders knew that the people were ascribing to him the title of Messiah. And they said to, to Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. This is blasphemy. And Jesus said, if they would remain silent, the very rocks will cry out and Jesus began to weep over Jerusalem and he said that if you would have known that that in this year day this year day Jesus saying to them in his triumphal entry especially in this this day the things that would make for your peace but now they're hidden from you and he talks about how the city is going to be leveled because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the day. You should have known. 173,880 days after the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Here I am on the scene. You should have known. You can discern the weather, but you can't discern the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 26. 
You know, there's a lot of Christians today that they're not discerning in the days in which we're in. They're saying, oh, end time prophecy, that's not important to listen. Oh, how do you know that we're in the last days? When we go through this, we're going to see the rumblings as Jesus even said that here are the signs that I am coming back. And the things that we see all around us are screaming at us to wake up, to watch, because he comes at a time that we do not know. We don't know the day or the hour, but the seasons and times we can be discerning that we are in. And we are indeed in the last days, and we're going to talk more detail about it. So Daniel here, he, he's saying, here's 69 weeks, but 70 weeks are determined for, to complete the history of Israel and the Jews, Jerusalem. So in this chapter here, as we continue on in Daniel chapter 9, in verse 27, which is a key for us even tonight, and again, I know I'm throwing a lot at you, um, but this is important. Verse 26 says, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. He's going to be crucified, but not for himself. And the people, the prince who is to come, Underline that the people, the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end of it shall be with the flood till the end of war. Desolations are determined. So who destroyed the second temple? Remember that as Daniel here is writing this, Jerusalem had laid in rubble uh, ruins. The first temple was destroyed. Here he's talking about there's going to be a time when Messiah is going to be cut off. He's going to be crucified. And the people, the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city. That's Rome, right? And then he, verse 27, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Who is he? You go back to the one, the people, the prince who is to come, this Antichrist. He's going to make a covenant with Israel in the 70th week for one week. That's why we know that the tribulation period is seven years. Because there's still one more week. The 70th week of Daniel is the former name of this period of time where we're going to see that God's dealing with the nation of Israel once again. And there's a lot of other things that are taking place. But in this week, it begins with the Antichrist, uh, the one who is to come out of Rome, this revived Roman Empire of what? Daniel chapter 2. And the reason I, I mention that is because it seems like every time there's a presidential election, it's like, you know, clear back, uh, Bill Clinton's the Antichrist. <laughs> you know, Obama's the Antichrist. Hillary Clinton's the Antichrist, whoever it is, you know. And, and it's like, no, he's not coming out of America. He's coming out of Rome. Daniel painstakingly, he says he's going to come out of this revived Roman Empire. So that's the first thing. That's why Daniel's so important for us to understand and, and to, to know what the scriptures has to say. Now I'm going to take it back to our text in Revelation chapter 6. After giving you that that introduction to the chapter that we read that now I saw when the lamb had opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying uh, with a voice like thunder come and see and I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering unto conquer so now the first seal is opened up and all of a sudden we see this first rider now in you've heard the term the four riders of the apocalypse the four horsemen of the Apocalypse. Again, even non-Christians have heard that term. They don't know what it's about, uh, but they know it's not good. 
And that's where they get it from here, the first four seals that are opened up, that we're only going to get through the first seal here, the first rider, but we're going to see that, um, that this is what is meant by the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And, and we're going to see that, that following this one, Antichrist, is going to come the other riders, and we'll get into that. But suffice it to say, this rider on a white horse, it's the beginning of the tribulation period. Now, another thing for you to understand and write in your notes, when you hear that term, the day of the Lord, what does that mean? We read about it in the book of Isaiah. You read about it in the Old Testament. When you read about it, you read that it's a time of judgment that's followed by blessing. Paul would write to uh, us in 1 Thessalonians um, you know, chapter 5, he says, concerning the times and seasons, after he talks about the rapture of the church, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now, again, I'm going to review it next week when we start getting into the seals that are opened up. What is interesting as we look at these four seals, that it parallels, and you can kind of do the reading on it, um, a little homework I'm going to give to you in the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is um, a teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples right before he went to the cross concerning his second coming. It's in Matthew chapter 24. It's in Mark 13. It's in Luke chapter 21, the synoptic gospels record it. And in Matthew chapter 24, when they were, you know, asking Jesus on the Mount of Olives, tell us what is the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus answered and said, take heed that no one deceives you for many will come in my name um, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against uh, kingdoms, and there will be famines and pestilence. It's interesting that word pestilence has the meaning that coming from livestock, like bird flu or something like that, and earthquakes in various places. But these are are all the beginning of sorrows. Paul says that the day of the Lord is like a labor pain. So we know that these signs, he said it's not the end, but these signs that we see the rumblings going on around this are going to come to full term here in Revelation chapter 6. Because what we see is a false Christ, just as Jesus said, war, we're going to see famine, we're going to be pestilence, and we're going to see in this chapter a great earthquake. And Jesus says that you're going to see the signs, but there's a restraining right now. And it's going to come to a full culmination as the day of the Lord begins. So here comes this rider. He's on a white horse. He's on a white horse. Now, some people say, well, this is Jesus. I, I heard one teaching. It's like, what do you mean this is Jesus? This is not Jesus. Because as we look at this rider on the white horse, uh, he is riding at the beginning of the tribulation period. Jesus is going to come back on a white horse, but that is until chapter 19. This rider on the white horse, he comes, and what follows, you know, the guys that are with him, he's got some bad company. And what's going to follow is war 
and famine and pestilence and earthquakes, we're going to see by the time the four seals open up that a quarter of the world is going to be killed. A quarter of the world. That's over one and a half billion people. That is all of South America, Central America, North America, and Western Europe. That's how many are going to perish in the first four seals that are opened up. When Jesus comes back, he's going to usher in his kingdom and righteousness. The Antichrist takes center stage as Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. When does the tribulation period begin? It begins with the coming of the Antichrist. We confirm it with Daniel chapter 9. We know that here in, in verse 2, he's riding on a white horse. He has a crown that is that he is conquering and the conquer. He's going to be a world leader. He's going to come on the scene. He's going to be, as we go through this book, he's going to be a political leader. As you read in, in Daniel chapter 7 and 8, it talks about this Antichrist, that he is going to subdue those kings. And we know that it is spoken of in um, chapter 7. As we read it, uh, you can read some of the things. He's going to be a great orator. The world's going to hail him as, as uh, one who has the answers. He's going to speak pompous things. Listen. The world's going to say, this is who we want. And when we get to Revelation chapter 13, the world's going to break out in worship. And break out in worship of, of the Antichrist. It's interesting. People don't want Jesus Christ. But the world's going to turn to the Antichrist. And so we will see that even as I, you know, Isaiah said, that Israel will make a covenant with hell and death. Jesus said that I... Come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me, but another will come in his own name, and him you will receive. The Antichrist coming on the scene, conquering on the conquer. He's going to come by peaceful means. He makes a covenant with Israel, a peace treaty with Israel for one week that seemingly is going to allow them to rebuild their temple because what we're going to see, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us, that he's going to go into the rebuilt temple. There's going to be a temple that will be rebuilt. The Jews are getting all ready for that temple. All they need is really a building right now. He's going to make a covenant with Israel for one week, one seven-year period. And then in the middle of that week, when we get to Daniel chapter you know, 13, chapter 12, we're going to see chapter 11, that the middle of the tribulation period, according to Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he will go into that rebuilt temple. He will proclaim himself as God to be worshipped as God is what Paul writes. He's going to come on the scene seemingly as a man of peace. He has a bow, but he doesn't have an arrow. So he's conquering unto conquer. A great orator. He's going to be a political leader. He's going to be a military leader. He's going to be a religious leader. 
Because at that time that he sets up an image of himself, that he's going to command the world to worship him. And those who do not take his allegiance and his mark, we're going to read that he's going to heavily persecute them. And that's why we're going to see that the tribulation saints are going to be heavily persecuted and the Jews. And they're going to have to flee to the rock city of Petra. All this is going on, the Antichrist. It's a false peace. And he's going to show his true colors. And he's going to plunge the world deep, deep into tribulation. The last three and a half years, we're going to see that term, 1,260 days, 42 months. You see that term, you know, um, time, times and a half time. If you have a King James, time is one year, times is two years, half time, half a year. And we're going to see that he's going to end up being defeated as Jesus Christ will come back. So all these things, this rider on the white horse begins the tribulation period. The rapture does not begin the tribulation period. There's going to be, I believe, as you know if you've been here, I believe that we will be taken out of and away from the hour of tribulation as promised to us in Revelation chapter 3 that will come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. That's why you see the doctrine of imminence here in the New Testament all over the place. Jesus says, I come in an hour that you do not know. When we talk about the return of the Lord, two distinct events, the rapture of the church, second coming of Jesus Christ. We know the second coming of Jesus Christ is is going to take place at the end of this seven-year period. But when it comes to the rapture of the church, he says that I come when you're least expected. It's going to be like the days of, of Sodom and, and, and Gomorrah. They were buying. They were selling. They didn't know judgment was going to come. They had no idea. It's like the days of Noah. When Noah went into the ark, the people, they, they were thinking, what is this kook doing? He's been building this ark for ark for 120 years and and he preached righteousness what do you mean judgment's going to come and eight people were right and a whole lot of people were wrong and the judgment came but they weren't expecting it they were given to marriage and and going about their daily business and the beginning of the tribulation period begins with this first seal the, the rider on the white horse and we know that the rapture of the church will be before that. So there's going to be a little gap of time between the rapture and the coming of the Antichrist. We are a restraining factor right now. Now, how much time? I don't know. I think it'll happen things pretty quickly because, and I got to finish up here because there's so much. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we are a restraining factor. And Paul talks about that. I'm going to read it to you. That it is told to us that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Speaking of Antichrist. So... He restrains. He's going to continue to restrain until he's taken out of the way and then lawlessness is going to take over. And I believe that he is a reference to the Holy Spirit that indwells the church. We are a restraining factor. Do you know that? Can you imagine what this world would be like if there wasn't any Christians? You think it's bad now? The post-rapture world is going to be horrible. So after that, the day of the Lord... The coming of Antichrist. We are never told in Scripture to be looking for Antichrist. We are always told to be looking for Jesus Christ. 
So you say, why is so much written about the Antichrist? What does it mean for us as we close here? Because I, I need to close here. That we see that these things, as we go through this, the rumblings all around us that point to the soon return of Jesus Christ. And we see these events that are taking place, the stage-setting events that are happening. And it's like the Lord is saying to us, wake up and be discerning of the days in which we're living in. And what it does is, as I compare chapter 6, like I said, I'm so happy we're going to be in chapter 5, that the Lord can come for us at any time. There's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church to happen. It, it can happen tonight. It can happen tomorrow. It can happen next year, 50 years. I don't know. But the Lord commands us to be watching and to be waiting and to be discerning and to be occupying till he comes. So what it does for me is it causes me to have an urgency that we need to be about the business of the king. And to be given the gospel and praying for those around us. Because I've heard some people, they have actually told me that, oh, this rapture stuff, you know, this end time stuff. I'll wait and see if it really happens. And I think that's a bad move, man. Because if you can't live for Christ now, how are you going to live for him when he's going to be lopping heads off in the tribulation period? So, you know, use your head. Don't lose your head. <laughs> and think about these things. When Jeremiah saw the destruction of Jerusalem... Some of the saddest verses of the Old Testament as Babylon was destroying Jerusalem. Judgment had come to them. He says, summer's over. Harvest is in. And we're not saved. I think there are people around us that we care for and we love, we work alongside of, live next to. There's a lot of people that are linked to us in our lives that they're not saved. And I want to be one, to be a light to them and to speak truth into their life because this is still the day of grace and may we have a heart for the lost. Calvary Chapel, may we be wise in the days in which we're living in, not playing games. We are rushing towards eternity and the time is short and we want to have a heart for the lost because it's going to be terrible when the rapture happens and then all these things that must come to pass. Listen, if you're here, you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, get right with God tonight. Second of all, if you're playing games with your Christianity, this is not a time to be playing games. We are here for such a time as this. We are in very unique days. We are living in the first generation of Christians since 70 AD that Israel is a nation and they were under the occupation of somebody but really the first generation of Christians that the Jews, Israel, the epicenter of Bible prophecy is on the scene and the church is on the scene. And the Lord's going to take us out. And then he has a plan for Israel as we talked about in Romans chapter 11. This is a time for us to really press in towards the Lord and be watching. He wants to use this church for us to be a city on a hill, a light to this community, to this county, to the people around us, to be praying. Let's do that, all right?
Be praying for that outreach. Be praying that we can reach others. Let's not play games with our Christianity. But the Lord is coming back. And there are people around us because this is a great evangelistic tool when people are saying, man, the world's going crazy. You can jump in because you've studied God's word and you can say, you know what, you know what the Bible says? I'll tell you, you'll get their attention. And they may go, wow, you know, whatever. But with this, you know, very much with wisdom and discernment, you can minister to them because you know what the Bible has to say. And you can use it to speak truth into people's lives. So let's be about the king's business. I, I get that from Daniel. After he saw all those visions, it said that he fell. It was, he was overwhelmed with it. He fainted. He was so overwhelmed. And then it said he got up and he was about the king's business. Some of these things are a little bit overwhelming. But when we leave this place, let's be about the king's business. Okay? Father, we thank you for this time. And a lot that we went over... And we're going to go through this period of time that is spoken of that, Lord, that you give us the privilege, the insight to know the things that are going to culminate to the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. And we're going to come back with him. And, Lord, we know that we see the rumblings around us, the signs. And, Lord, we can have a clear understanding from the whole of Scripture the things that will take place in the days ahead. I want to pray if there's anyone here that you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been hanging out in the church, maybe kind of checking things out. But have you given your life, your heart to Jesus Christ? We want to give you that invitation. Because Jesus is your hope. He redeemed the world. He redeemed you with his precious blood. He died on that cross for you because he loves you. And he rose from the grave. He's alive. He's the son of God. And even as one of the the four living creatures said, come and see, the invitation from the Lord is always to come. Will you give your life to him? Will you come to him for forgiveness and salvation? And you can pray right where you are, that Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me. Forgive me. You're alive, speaking to my heart. Sit upon the throne of my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. And I do want to walk with you, and I want to know you, and I thank you for this new beginning. Thank you for bringing me here. In Jesus' name. But listen, listen. We just a few more minutes and I'll be done. Maybe you're here. And maybe you drifted. Maybe you've been distracted by the world. You know that the Lord's been dealing with you and he loves you. He convicts you not to push you away, but to bring you to him. And maybe there needs to be a reaffirming of your commitment to him. And he's speaking to you right now. He loves you. He forgives you. But to say this day, I'm not going to play games with my Christianity. I'm not going to let the world dominate me. I want to live for you, Lord. Because you are my hope and future.
You're my peace. And you will do exceedingly abundantly above all that I ask or think. I don't want to live for myself or live for the world. And you can pray, Lord, I come back to you to reaffirm my love for you, my belief in you, a desire to follow after you, Lord. I don't want to be caught up in the world and distracted by all the things that take me away from you, but to know you more, to love you more, to rest in your love. And I thank you for just receiving me in your incredible mercy and love and grace. And for all of us tonight as we leave this place that our hearts would be stirred. The days are short. And we need to be wise. And we are living in such unique times. So Lord, may we keep our eyes on you. May we walk with you day by day, moment by moment, being a light to others, giving truth and a message of hope. Bless everyone here as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.